Hi, I'm Angela East and welcome to another edition of the East Meets West podcast. This podcast is proudly focused on Western Australia, the engine room of the Australian economy. From the CEOs, company directors, brokers, entrepreneurs and everyone in between, East Meets West is a deep dive into what makes the greatest state on earth tick. On this episode of the East Meets West podcast, I'm chatting with Simon Molyneux, the Managing Director of Molyneux Advisors, a leading provider of upstream advice to the energy industry. Simon has a long history in the energy space, having worked for global oil and gas super major Shell until 2004, then Talisman Energy, a Canadian independent operator until 2014, and Santos until 2018. From there, Simon started his own technical consultancy to help solve the intricate challenges faced by the energy industry. Simon believes with current and likely technological developments, only gas can ensure low-cost, reliable, available and safe energy in Western Australia for several decades. One of the key areas highlighted in a study completed by Simon and his team is the North Perth Basin. The study shows how over the coming decades, Western Australia's gas supply will be transformed by gas from the North Perth Basin. Simon joins me to discuss the need for a long-term baseload source of energy in WA to support the clean energy transition, where that material supply will come from, and the potential for the state to also be a major location for carbon capture and storage developments. Welcome, Simon. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you've been in the energy industry a long time and probably seen quite a lot over the years. Give us a bit of an overview of your background and what motivated you to establish a career in the energy space. My name's Simon Molyneux. I'm a geologist by background. I've got my degrees in earth science. So that's uh, um, the, s- the systems and processes associated with the earth and the atmosphere. So it's geology, but also um, climate and uh, oceanography and, and, and things like that, and, and a lot of a lot of geophysics. Um, and I've got a did a PhD in uh, in structural geology, really looking at, uh, at how mountains form and such like. Uh, at the end of that, I, I got involved in, uh, in in having to earn some money, so I, so I joined the oil and gas industry. Uh, and why did I do that? Well, really because I was interested in very big problems and. Uh, the oil and gas industry works uh, on on some of the you know the world's biggest projects, um, and as a as someone very interested in the earth, I got to find out things about the earth uh, and its resources, um, in you know, and and get paid for it at the same time. So uh, it was a very um, easy transition for me. Um, but I but I have to also say it's always been a, been an uneasy place to be because uh, as someone who has a deep understanding of the way. Um, the, the earth systems and processes um, you know, oil and gas production is is out of balance with uh, with those processes so something that's become very uh, important to me during my career is how how we um, work with the energy resources that's needed by humanity to to sustain and uh, and and grow um, safely um, and uh, and in harmony with the planet the uh, the 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 humans that live live on the planet, but also how to make sure that we efficiently develop um, the resources that we've got and and reduce the impact uh, that those resources might have on on the Earth system. So, how has the the energy landscape evolved during the time you have worked in the industry? I've been involved in the energy industry. I think I my first uh, energy um, job back in uh, the early nineties, and and at that time, very much a uh, industry that sustained advanced economies uh, western economies uh, with with oil particularly for, for transportation uh, but an awareness of, uh, of of large growing economies particularly in Asia 
whose energy demand was increasing rapidly and and the gas was was part of that so more and more through my career i saw i saw more gas development uh and had the opportunity to work in asia for uh, for five years uh delivering um you know the energy needs of a, of a large growing economies and i think since in since that time in the in sort of early uh, 2000s um we have seen more and more transition towards lng and in particular lng as a transportable fuel uh, meeting meeting um, lower emissions requirements uh, around the world, and then in the last uh, decade or so, uh, we've seen a real uh, recognition uh, of the impact of uh, of fossil fuels on on the climate and uh, a desire to move away from fossil fuels and, and the importance of the energy transition. Uh, that's discussion of carbon capture and storage, but also the use of wind and solar, and the importance of uh, of, of hydrocarbons as as re- retaining as part of the energy system to make sure that uh, we can we can keep that energy supply uh, nice and consistent uh, and reliable and uh, and affordable. So, why did you decide to start a technical advisory business? Oh, I've always been fascinated by the technical aspects of my business. So, I'm a I'm a geologist geophysicist, um, worked uh, on lots of what are called petroleum engineering problems, so the associated engineering problems of getting hydrocarbons out of the ground, and that's my first love. So I've got a deep passion of that. I've worked in technical, managerial, and executive positions around different businesses, but fundamentally, I believe it all comes down to the rocks uh, when you start to talk about many energy businesses. And I also recognize that uh, as part of supplying energy going forwards, we need to make sure that we are avoiding energy use when we can. But when we have to exploit uh, hydrocarbons, we need to do it as efficiently as possible. Uh, And I believed that I had, uh, that I could deliver through the advisory uh, efficient development, um, really make uh, an impact on value, um, then ensuring that 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 energy was developed at uh, low cost. And, And that this was an important uh, role to play in a in a fair energy transition, and at the same time, the skills that I have are very applicable to, to new energy uh, around carbon capture and storage, as well as you may, mentioned, um, but also uh, geothermal energy exploitation. So I, I thought there was a real uh, niche to exploit, and it's been my uh, uh, joy over the last uh, five and a half years to do that. So, what are some of the challenges facing the energy industry in Western Australia, and and how do consultancies like yours help? companies adapt and overcome them. Challenge in Western Australia, um, as many people know, is it's an enormous place. We have an enormous uh, resource endowment um, and that at times can make us a little bit uh, uh, lazy because we think that you know there's just another one to go and find. But particularly when it comes to, uh, to, to gas and uh, you know available energy, we have had uh, fits and starts at the development of that. And, and our extractive industries, the, the resources and the iron ore, uh, other minerals that are there, other, you know, require an awful lot of uh, energy to uh, actively develop that. So we've got to make, to keep I mean, Western Australia growing uh, and a vibrant economy, we've got to really find, develop, and exploit the energy supply from as local a place as possible. And as we go forwards, um, in, in WA and move off coal because our coal resources have run out, but also it's a very dirty way of uh, generating electricity. We've got to ensure that we've got enough gas so that we don't have the bizarre situation like they have on the East Coast where they might be importing LNG, but uh, you know at the other end of the, uh, end of the country, they're, they're uh, developing gas. 
um, and also leaving leaving low cost uh, gas in the ground locally. Um, so um, how do we make sure that we are um, as efficient in developing our resources and keep our overall emissions as low as possible? Obviously, talking about gas there with the clean energy transition underway and the, and the global effort to decarbonise, where do you see traditional sources like gas fitting in? Well, I think about the energy uh, transition very much in what's called a hierarchy of controls. So the first thing we should always do is try and avoid energy use wherever possible. Whenever we have to use it, we need to use it as efficiently as possible. And then if we can't avoid some form of emissions, then we need to make sure that we mitigate those as much as possible. When it comes to energy efficiency, right? gas is a very efficient fuel. It can be burned very efficiently and turned into energy, but also it's very available. So uh, um, you can spin up a gas-powered power station uh, in a small number of minutes. So when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, uh, we can we can we can turn that energy supply on. Equally, um, the energy density of hydrocarbons is so much higher than uh, than anything else. Um, that we currently have available. So while we call them traditional sources, I very much see them as part of generating the base load and making sure it can fill in the gaps around uh, intermittent sources of energy, uh, such as such as wind and solar. At the same time, it is, you know, gas reservoirs are always um, proximal to other formations that might be very useful for storage. We generate fairly clean combustion emissions from from gas, so they're relatively easy to store back under the ground. So I, I see gas as having a very important role um, in, in reducing our overall emissions. What regions of Western Australia have the most potential to deliver significant gas resources? Well, at the moment, we're very reliant on uh, offshore resources that come from the LNG plants. And traditionally, we've been very reliant on, uh, on domestic gas um, that comes from the uh, um, Northwest Shelf. As Northwest Shelf starts to run down um, to sustain the uh, gas supply, um, we need new sources. It's been very interesting since uh, I think uh, 2013, 2014, uh, when the first discovery was made in the Perth Basin to see that there's abundant resources of gas in the onshore Perth Basin. And I think there's the opportunity to supply um, up to two thirds of uh, Western Australia's uh, total gas needs from the Perth Basin. For those of you who don't know, we we use about 1.4 petajoules of gas a day in WA. Um, about I think there's a possibility that we could uh, we could deliver up to a petajoule of gas from the Perth Basin, and you know that's a that's a really material number. And as the uh, existing offshore um, gas fields uh, run down. Uh, the LNG plants uh, will remain there for, 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 for many years. Uh, we need to, uh, to put in another supply. Um, I think there's further opportunities in the offshore, uh, particularly uh, the development of gas resources around the Dorado accumulation. Uh, I think onshore, um, Bureau Energy's uh, Raphael discovery in the Canning Basin, uh, again, provide you know, material resources. There's also many you know, exploration opportunities that remain in, in Western Australia that can be uh, developed relatively cheaply uh, and at very low emissions uh, and continue a uh, significant gas uh, supply to sustain the uh, industries that we have. Which companies are likely to be best positioned to deliver this supply to market in the near to medium term and over the longer term? As I mentioned in the, in the previous uh, point there, we've had significant accumulations found in, in the Perth Basin. Um, mineral resources, uh, well-known Western Australian success story 
um, has found a significant resource in the Perth Basin, and in my opinion, the, the best quality resource that's undeveloped. Beach and Mitsui are busy developing their uh, their, their Waitsia development. That will be on stream shortly, supplying 200 terajoules a day of, uh, of gas, um, both for, for LNG customers and uh, and domestic gas supplies. Uh, Strike Energy, uh, uh, again, have been very, very successful with their developments, and, and we'll see that coming on stream through the next uh, uh, two or three years. Uh, and, and likewise, there remains a significant exploration, uh, sort of exploration opportunities in Triangle Energy have been very uh, open to the market about their opportunities. Uh, and, and, and I know that there are others who, who have exploration opportunities in the basin, but uh, that are perhaps a little quieter about them. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of the major oil and gas players evolving to include things like renewables and carbon capture and storage. Talk us through some of the drivers of a super major like Shell versus the drivers of the smaller ASX-listed companies. That's a really good question, and it's a question often sort of posed uh, in, in in the press and elsewhere. Why 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 doesn't Shell or Exxon move you know 100% to renewables? Well, Shell is very driven by economics. It's also very driven by its overall portfolio. It's got assets that it already owns, and it uh, um, can see uh, what its business is capable of over the long term. So they're very interested in reducing their overall uh, unit emissions and making sure that they operate responsibly. There's often a discussion that you know Shell shouldn't be allowed or shouldn't you know get involved in renewables, etc. Um, a company like Shell is one of the most responsible uh, corporate players, and there are many of those other large companies who take their uh, responsibilities extremely seriously. But at the end of the day, it's got to be a business that makes money. So they'll be looking at exiting high emissions and high cost uh, operations, and you've seen them some sell some of those uh, legacy business assets. You'll see them doing new oil and gas developments, but those will be much lower unit carbon emissions compared to anything else that is in their portfolio. So, you know, electrified platforms, for example, is something we're seeing a lot in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, and in Europe. But at the same time, they're developing renewables, and those renewables have got to be making making uh, a commercial rate of return over the period. So, I think what we'll see is that uh, the large traditional oil and gas energy producers will evolve to be low carbon energy producers. They'll produce a lot of energy, but from a range of sources. And some of those might be fossil fuels. Some of those will be wind and solar. There may be maybe other things that we don't yet know about. Um, I think uh, we've seen, uh, seen ExxonMobil, I think, talking about uh, a lithium development uh, in, the, in the US. So uh, they're going to use the skills that they have around project delivery the skills that they have around uh, engineering, uh, both surface and subsurface, to deliver um, those those projects and really re- leverage the capability they have. I think there's a real uh, a real opportunity for them to uh, leverage their skills uh, to develop, for example, carbon capture and storage at scale. Uh, because a they have the source of emissions, but b they have a, a deep well of knowledge around developing. Uh, um, any subsurface resource as efficiently as possible. And in carbon capture and storage, keeping costs low and manageable uh, is really, really important. Whereas compared to an ASX listed company, uh, many of our ASX friends are, are quite small uh, and it is very much a uh, about delivering a value multiplier and uh, keeping keeping the news flow. So you see a lot of uh, 
floating of balloons, if you will, uh, whether with the hydrogen projects or hydrogen exploration or battery metals and look over here and not over here. Um, and uh, we see a lot of innovation taking place in that space. And I think you know you'll, what you will see is some of those uh, super majors who are necessarily more conservative because they need to do things at great scale, uh, looking at uh, at the smaller companies for, for innovative products to, uh, to, to license or buy up and bring part of that portfolio. I think that's part of the natural evolution we've seen we've seen uh, through time uh, where the, uh, the, 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 the bigger pick off pick off the smaller um, and uh, those those with poor ideas wither wither and die. I think it's it's part of the uh, um, very um, vibrant um, capital raising environment we have in Australia. That's an interesting point you make about the the majors looking to the the smaller companies uh, for innovation. Do you see the mergers and acquisitions activity increasing in the space? I think there's a lot of um, globally a lot of mergers and acquisitions uh, going on in the oil and gas space. But a lot of that is around consolidating in some some major plays and trying to reduce reduce costs. I think we'll continue to see a lot of uh, active capital raising in the small cap space and. Uh, and I think we, you know, we will see, um, as we saw with uh, with with Warigo, uh, I think last year, um, looking those those who've got high quality resources or high quality innovative context uh, uh, product uh, being, uh, being 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 seen as very valuable to, uh, to to bigger players who perhaps can't be as uh, agile. So there there are many different views on the the viability and cost effectiveness of CCS as an option to support oil and gas production. What are your thoughts on the technology and how Western Australia can play a key role in this? I think the first one to address there is the viability. Carbon capture and storage uh, is a very viable process. It's been technically proven. The first place it was proven is as a something called enhanced oil recovery, where CO2 was injected into existing oil reservoirs to push more oil out. That's been operating in the US for for, for decades and and in other places, but the US is most uh, the most well-known example. Likewise, in different parts of the world, there are carbon capture and storage processes um, ongoing. Uh, and uh, some of those uh, are very publicly known; others, others less so. But the bottom line is, it's a, it's a, it's a technically proven process. It is still evolving. If you'd looked at the first, uh, um, you know, I'm pretty sure the first or second uh, major uh, scale iron ore mine that was uh, was developed was perhaps not uh, not developed as optimally as possible. Um, but the twentieth one is done done very. Very, very efficiently, and CCS is going through that process of learning and standardising the processes so that it can be scalable and used um, it, all, all over the place. You know, I would take take issue with the support oil and gas production. Um, I think uh, oil um, is is fundamental to so many aspects of uh, modern life that we have. For example, you know, all many, many, not all, but many, many products for example, using the medical industry. Uh, lots of, uh, of plastic products that we use um, all the time. Uh, likewise, um, I think I've talked extensively already about the, the role gas has to play in affirming energy production. So alongside that, we've got to mitigate the emissions of that uh, of that combustion process, and CCS provides a, a very uh, good way of doing that. Now, cost effectiveness and economic viability. CCS is a waste management business, and we've got to be very, very effective, very, very cost focused. That doesn't mean to say we cut any corners, but we've got to do it 
very, very efficiently and minimize the amount of transporting that uh, of that carbon dioxide from its point of production to its point of disposal. Uh, so um, there are some techniques that we're going to need to le- develop and to learn to make sure that we can get that carbon under the ground um, as efficiently as possible. I think the, the last point, which is really important, is that we've got to do that in a very socially responsible way. Um, I am just as aware as anybody else of uh, you know, when we, if we were to talk about landfill, nobody wants a landfill uh, in their backyard. However, uh, many landfills or, uh, for example, waste to energy projects um, do operate very effectively in the proximity of their neighbours. So uh, we've got to uh, develop a social license to operate for the carbon capture and storage industry and operate as uh, as responsible um, and as openly and transparently as uh, as we can with the community to uh, to develop that we've got a meaningful role to play. Those are some great points you've covered today, Simon. Thanks so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you for your time. <laughs>